Hey everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, I want to convince you that peace is so much more than just a state of mind. My name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. And if you've been tracking with us at all, you know that we're in a series called The Gospel of John, where we've been taking a journey through John's Gospel. And a couple weeks ago, we had talked about this moment of fear. And, and we kind of talked about how fear is a very poor long-term motivator. It has its place in the short term. But in the long term, it is a, it is a poor long-term motivator. And, and we saw two men who allowed fear to keep their belief in Jesus quiet and sequestered to the secret places of their lives. And this week, um, we want to we kind of, we're going to see the effects of fear, the same fear that these men had a couple weeks ago, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We see that this fear is in the disciples themselves now. And so as we kind of pick up into this moment, uh, this is a tale of, of, yes, beginning with fear, but really is a tale of redemption where fear turns to peace. And we're going to talk a lot about what is peace? What is a biblical worldview of being people that have peace? Now, let me kind of set the scene for you. The disciples, they're locked away right now in an upper room. They are scared of the religious authorities. Uh, who had uh, brought Jesus to crucifixion. And so they're hiding out. And I'm sure like kind of the, the, the feeling, you know, every shadow is something <laughs> horrible. Every creak on the stairs coming up to that room is them out to get them. Like fear has a way of just playing with your mind and creating just an absolute anxiety around every little thing. And it builds in our minds. Like I said, this account here, it's not an account of fear winning the day. It's actually an account of peace winning the day over fear. But in the midst of their fear, uh, these disciples have Mary Magdalene, who came to them and said, Hey, I saw Jesus resurrected. I saw him resurrected in bodily form. Now, they have to wrestle with this eyewitness account. Do they believe her? Do they not believe her? Um, how are they processing it? We don't really know how they're processing this. Now, Luke's account of this moment has um, disciples coming back from Emmaus. And so Cleopas and another disciple had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And when they arrived to Emmaus, they had this moment of eating together. And Jesus in that moment breaks the bread and reveals himself as Jesus, as, as the res resurrected Savior. And so they get up and they return to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples. So now, just picture this. You're afraid. You're scared. You're together as one. You're in this upper room behind locked doors. You've had now multiple eyewitness accounts that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has been resurrected. Can, can you kind of picture the fear, the doubt, the excitement, the anticipation, the like what a mix of emotions as these disciples are hiding out in this upper room. 
So let's jump into this moment. It's a moment that's recorded by an eyewitness. John was in this room. John was feeling these emotions. He was feeling the fear. He was feeling the doubt. Um, but all of that changed. He, he witnessed the change in the peace that came as he witnessed the resurrected Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, John 20, and we're going to start verse 19 to 23. Here we go. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said these things, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you will withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Lord, as we kind of dig into this moment in John's gospel, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us in truth? Well, Lord God, you bring revelation that's living, that's active in our hearts and in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. This was Jesus' greeting to his disciples in this moment. Now, it's important to understand that this is not some kind of like exotic greeting. This was literally uh, shalom, uh, peace be with you. It, it was a common greeting in the first century among the Jewish people. But in, in to kind of ca capture kind of what's going on here, we need to understand what, what this actually means. Um, this is kind of a sacred moment. Uh, when I use the word sacred, what sacred means is it's, it's a moment that's set apart for the purpose of deity. It's a moment that is set apart for the purposes of God. And then this common kind of place greeting of shalom, peace, it carries with it a greater meaning than just uh, may you uh, be removed from trouble in this world. It, it almost literally means may God give you every good thing. May God give you every good thing. So I want you to picture this moment, right? The resurrected Jesus just appears in this locked room. He appears there. And he says, peace be with you. May God give you every good thing. I don't know about you, but in the midst of our fears, our doubts, and our circumstances, we, we, we need and we crave a revelation of the resurrected Jesus to put everything into perspective. This is our access. This is our point of access to the peace that we're looking for. And what a beautiful picture of what's unfolding here. Um, can, can you just take a moment and consider the resurrected Jesus, you know, God gave his only begotten son, the perfect gift, the best gift, the best of all creation, the best of deity. Like he shows up as the, the good thing that God gives humanity. And, it, and he says, peace be with you. May, may God give you every good thing. I love this moment, but there's a little bit more happening here. There's a bit of a microcosm of the gospel taking form and taking shape in this moment. Let's just, let's kind of just go through it. Let's see it kind of play out and step out. Um, prior to this moment, we have witnesses who have had a revelation of the resurrected Jesus, right? Mary Magdalene, uh, Cleopas, and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. They come back and they give eyewitness accounts. This is how Jesus appeared to me. This is what we talked about. This is how he revealed himself. And they're so unique and they're so different and yet they're so profound. But the main thing is the resurrected 
Jesus. So we have these witnesses who speak and testify of their story in their encounter with Jesus. But then there's a second part here for the disciples themselves in this upper room. They need to begin. They begin to kind of ask questions. They begin to seek. They begin to wrestle with their doubts and their skepticism. They, there's this kind of process of exploring faith. And what I love about this, though, is at the end of the day, it's not up to the eyewitnesses. It's not up to the intellectual process of trying to get to a certain place of belief. But what I love about this is it's in this moment that Jesus himself reveals himself to these disciples. What a beautiful kind of picture of the gospel this, the, 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 the mechanics of salvation playing out in the lives of people. And this is no different. This is what we see today. The moment when Jesus is revealed to us and speaks shalom over our own lives. Peace be with you. May you know the good thing that is the resurrected Jesus. And it's in this moment when, when, when the fear, the hiding, the shame, the unknowns, they all lose their power in the presence of the prince a peace. Jesus is the personification of this peace. Peace becomes less about a state of mind and more about your state of relationship with the Prince of Peace. But I want you to notice how simple the proclamation of the gospel here was. It wasn't complicated. What was Mary's role? What was Cleopas's role? They simply brought eyewitness account of what they saw and experienced. That's it. That was their part to play in the proclamation of the gospel. Wow, like we so overcomplicate what it is to be missional people, don't we? We feel like we got to have all these things in a row, have it all figured out. No, what is your experience with Jesus? What has he done in your life? That is your story. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's your story. Now, should we, should we learn and grow in an understanding of salvation and the gospel and our God and all those? Absolutely. Of course we should. But our understanding of the mechanics of salvation and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and all the things, it should not stop us from sharing our eyewitness accounts. It was not their job to convince, convict, or establish belief. It was not Mary's job to convince, convict, and establish belief in the other disciples. They were just simply faithful to the small part that they played in the proclamation, the eyewitness account of what they experienced. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he confirms it. He confirms it in their lives in this moment. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Um, Luke, Luke goes in so much more detail in this moment because he wants to make something abundantly clear. This is not Jesus as a spiritual being. This is not Jesus as some like ethereal being or ghost 
This is Jesus in bodily form, flesh and blood in a glorified and being glorified presence and body. Notice John's careful to describe the room here as closed and not only closed, but it was locked. Because here in this moment, Jesus miraculously appears to them. This is a glorified, eternal body that is not limited by the temporal rules of creation any longer. Like, this is kind of a significant picture. This is more than just Jesus in flesh and blood. This is Jesus in flesh and blood that has been glorified, that is now eternal. This is Jesus in the flesh. But these men who had ministered with Jesus for three and a half years are now the ones confirming that this is indeed him. The nail holes in his hands and feet bearing witness to his identity. This is the same Jesus who is nailed to the cross. Luke goes much further in, in detail as he argues this important point of a bodily resurrection of Jesus. In, in Luke um, 24, starting verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. May God give you every good gift. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. You know, in Luke's account here, Jesus also eats some fish. Luke takes it a step further as he writes his eyewitness account of this moment. Because why in the world would a spirit or a ghost want to eat. There's no need. There's no bodily function. There's no purpose to eating unless you have flesh and blood. And why is this so important? Why is the bodily resurrection of, of Jesus so, so critical to the Christian belief? Well, number one, it's critical to understand that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, came with flesh on. That he came as a human being. He felt the pain, the hunger, the limitations of the body in this world. He restricted himself from a state of omnipresence, right? This idea that God is everywhere is not restricted by time and space. But he restricted himself to the limitations that we all share as a humanity. The power of his sacrifice for us, it's, it's diminished. If we believe that he was just a manifest spirit in the world. His resurrection in body, soul, and spirit gives us a hope for a return to the original intentions of creation. The hope of eternal life is, is also this discovery and this realization that our bodies, our minds, our spirits will also be glorified as we believe in Jesus, as we believe in his resurrection, that resurrection is imputed to us as well when the time comes. There, there's such hope in here. And, and it's not just like a facsimile of ourselves. No, it is us by the very essence. Who we are will be resurrected and glorified in body, soul, and spirit. 
Not some facsimile, not some kind of copy, but rather us, who you are, will be perfected when that day comes. But number two, it also speaks to this idea of what we do with our body, our soul, and our spirit is inextricably linked. It's all linked. We, we can't create a theology that says what we do with our bodies doesn't matter as long as our spirit is secure. That, that's, that's what we call a Gnostic gospel. And this is Gnostic gospel became very popular very soon after the establishment of the church. But the gospel we are witnesses to is one of the redemption of the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus was perfect because he did not allow the hungers and desires of the flesh and his blood to dictate his behavior. He was perfect because he wrangled the body, the flesh, his flesh and blood. He wrangled the temptations of the body into submission to his will. This is why Jesus is the perfect lamb. Consider the power of that. You know, John is so careful to describe this as a bodily resurrection. Jesus is resurrected in body, soul, and spirit. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Now, this is kind of our first moment of commissioning. Later at his ascension, Jesus will give more detail to this commission. But, but here is kind of, in essence, the calling of every disciple to, who will follow Jesus. This is the calling. But then it says he breathed on them. Now today, that maybe would come across as a little odd, a little weird. Uh, if somebody came to a group of us and breathed on us, we might wonder what's up. But in the first century, the Jewish society, things would have been a little different because they would have had a bit, of, a bit of a different picture. They would have a bit of a different paradigm as it came to this moment. And it could bring all sorts of pictures into mind. Genesis 2, verse 7, the creation story. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You, you see in the parallels here. They would have understood the parallels here. Uh, it, it reminds them of the prophecy of the prophet Ezekiel. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O oh, breathe, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You know, this moment right here is one in which Jesus breathes resurrection life into the lives of his disciples. In essence, Jesus hand-delivers them the gift of salvation, the miraculous kind of metamorphosis of redemption, new creations in Christ Jesus. They, they have a, a wit, they've witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They, they've believed Jesus is establishing a new, completed paradigm in his disciples. The breath of God that we've been waiting for 
is found in Jesus as he's revealed and as he empowers his people. Um, This is a beautiful picture. Now, I don't understand the mechanics of this moment. Did the Spirit come in this moment? Was something regenerated in the disciples in this moment? Did they have to wait till the outpouring of the Spirit uh, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? I don't know. I don't understand the mechanics. There's a mystery here that we don't fully understand in terms of the timeline and how this all plays out. But the symbolism certainly is Jesus is making a point as he breathes this resurrection life over his disciples. Now, can I kind of go off on a tangent real quick? Because we just quoted Ezekiel um, 37, 9 to 10. And it's, it's, there's a kind of prophetic moment here in Ezekiel that, that speaks to a time yet to come. And can I just say that Ezekiel, this prophecy about the dry bones and the sinews and the muscles and the flesh coming on them and then God breathing life into this great army. Um, At that time, that was a future tense. That was a prophecy of something yet to come. But this is the moment. Sometimes we use that prophecy to kind of declare revival, you know, like, Lord, we need revival. We need a fresh one to your revival. And we use this prophecy to kind of speak to that. But that prophecy was not meant for anything in our paradigm right now for the future, in the church or in revival or a moment. That paradigm, that, that, that prophecy was speaking to this moment right here. This moment that we're looking at right now as Jesus breathes over his disciples on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit comes and breathes life over and empowers the disciples. That is what this is speaking of. Revival is already here. Salvation is here. The breath of the Spirit is here. And I think sometimes when we use Ezekiel's prophecy to prop up the pursuit of revival in our day, we miss out on the fact that the revival has already come. The spirit is already active and moving. And when we, we begin to look for something future tense, no, revival is here. Salvation is here. The spirit is here today, now, in your life, in my life, in the church, in our community, in our nation. So let me just encourage you. Revival, the spirit, life is here. Salvation is here. And Jesus breathes on his disciples in this moment. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, like I said, I don't fully understand the mechanics of this moment. Did did they receive the Spirit in this moment? Did they receive a regeneration, a metamorphosis as new creations in Christ Jesus, resurrection life being made manifest in them? I don't know. Did they have to wait for the Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost? There's a mystery here. There's a sovereignty of God in this moment. But Jesus follows this moment up by saying, what can become misconstrued, misunderstood, and even potentially dangerous if we don't fully understand it. Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what's going on here? Is this saying that those that follow Jesus have the power to declare forgiveness over people and to not declare forgiveness over people. 
Like, do we have the authority and the power to forgive or not to forgive? And I don't think that's what this is saying. And so we need to kind of walk through this carefully. See, I think that this is talking less about us having the authority to forgive, to, to, to walk through the process of someone else being forgiven for their sins. This has much more to do with relational closeness to the one who forgives and understanding relationship with the one who forgives. You know, you can speak that forgiveness with confidence over someone who has a repentant and penitent and contrite heart because you know the forgiver. You know the heart of God. You know the heart of the forgiver. William Barclay, he puts it this way. Suppose someone brings us a message from another. Our assessment of the value of that message will depend on how well the bringer of the message knows the sender. If someone proposes to interpret another's thoughts to us, we know that the value of that person's interpretation depends on the closeness they have with the other. Let, let, let me put it this way. If you have a question for me, but I am unavailable and it is time sensitive, you have a question for me. You want my perspective and opinion on a matter, but you have no access to me. Who in this world would be the next best person to get the closest idea of what my thought process would be on that issue? Who, who would that be? If you're, if you're saying Lisa, for those that don't know, Lisa is my wife. If you're saying Lisa, then you'd be correct, right? She knows me more intimately than anybody else in this world. So if you would want someone to give you the best idea of where I would come from on something, she would be someone that would carry a level of authority to represent my thoughts on issues in this world. It's out of your relationship with Jesus who, who's convinced you of, of his forgiveness for you. As you walk through that penitent, repentant time in that moment, and you've known the forgiveness of God and the heart of God, and as you intimately know him, you will see others in your lifetime walk through that same process, and you will be able to declare forgiveness over them because you know the heart of God for them. Do you see what I'm talking about? God is still forgiving. Jesus is still covering their sins, not you. You don't have authority to do that. But you do have authority to declare it as you see it play out. Now here's the tough part because there's, a, there's two sides to this coin as you saw as we read this. The gift of forgiveness involves repentance and a penitent heart. Those, if those are the ingredients and they're not present in someone's act of seeking forgiveness then with equal authority, you will be able to speak that you're not forgiven because you can see and you know that a heart is not repentant and not penitent. And so this is kind of, it's not speaking to the mechanics of forgiveness. It's speaking to the authority of knowing the forgiver and what the forgiver seeks from each and every one of us as we seek salvation and forgiveness. And friends, it's always better to warn one who's posturing. It's, it's better to warn them than to allow a soul to be self-deceived 
and, and, and self-deceived in their own salvation. Um, let me ask you, how many of you have been in a, an argument with a significant other? And you've, you've tried to escape that argument, that moment, by just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, right? Now the tone, you're saying the right words, but the tone is like either I'm trying to escape this moment, um, I'm sorry. Uh, either you're, you're trying to just placate, you know, your significant other or whatever. Maybe you're sorry that you got busted. Maybe you're sorry that you're going through this argument, but you're not sorry for the offense. And so forgiveness takes repentance. It takes penitence. It takes a contrite heart. And sometimes when you're in those arguments, you say you're sorry, your significant other goes, you're sorry for what? And you get busted, you get caught. And then you, you have to walk through this difficult situation. You know, repentance, true repentance is contrite, it's penitent, and it's not self-serving. It would seem that, that we've, we've kind of covered a lot here as we kind of walk through this. Uh, I, I do apologize. Uh, it is a lot. There's so much nuance and significance here. But my hope is that you would take kind of this main thing away today. The peace that you're looking for in this world is found in the person of Jesus. It's found on the other side of that forgiveness that he has for you. It's not a state of mind, as we said at the top. It's not a state of mind. It's the state of your relationship with the one who is called the Prince of Peace. The one who calms the storms of your mind and your soul and your spirit through his forgiveness. As you are convinced and convicted and encouraged as sons and daughters of God. That's where peace is found. That's where true peace is found. It's not a state of mind, it's a state of relationship. His forgiveness settles your debts to God. His forgiveness shows you a better and more fulfilling way. His spirit breathed in you, changes you. And as we take a moment to pray, I want you to consider your relationship with the Prince of Peace. You know, for those of you exploring faith today, would you consider kind of taking a leap of faith and, and asking, for his forgiveness, asking that Jesus would come and make himself revealed to you in your life. Because maybe you've heard witnesses, you've heard others, and they, they would say, Jesus has changed my life, and Jesus is taking me on a different trajectory, and, and Jesus is, I'm pursuing the things of God. And you hear these eyewitness accounts, but you're just like the disciples. You're up in that upper room with fears and skepticisms and doubts. And then you're wrestling and you're exploring and you're asking your questions. But friend, you're only going to get so far with the intellectual process. At some point, you need to seek this person who is Jesus. And I believe that he will reveal himself to you. You may not fully understand it. But the Holy Spirit will guide you through that process. He will give you a revelation of Jesus that will change your life forever. So Lord God, as we kind of take a moment to reflect on this moment, we see these disciples, Lord, in such fear and trembling. 
They're scared of man. They're scared of those in, in, in authority. They're scared of the society around them. They've heard these eyewitness accounts and they're wrestling with what to do with all of that. And yet, Lord Jesus, you reveal yourself to them in such a real and beautiful way. Lord, we pray that you would do the same for each and every one of us. That for those of you who have had a revelation of Jesus, that we would be good witnesses of that gospel, telling our story of his saving grace. For those that are hearing eyewitness accounts but still have doubts and questions and fears, Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus to us right now? In Jesus' name. And for those that say yes to Jesus in this moment, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you breathe that life upon them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, please, as you're kind of considering, please be in prayer for Pastor Marcus as he is away for the next couple weeks at a conference and that God would just pour into his life. And so if you are praying, just remember him. God bless everyone. Have a great week.